Sebab khair, Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Good morning. Uh, may the peace of God and His grace and blessings be on everyone here. Um, so this seminar is about sharing the gospel with Muslims in the secular country of France. Um, but more than just the secular country of France, I feel like that it would uh, just be a, a I want to be able to portray a way for us to be able to get to know Muslims and share the gospel wherever we're at in the States or around the world. Because I, I found that sharing the gospel with Muslims is pretty much, um, I don't know if I'd say the same, but pretty similar uh, everywhere that you would be uh, in the world. Um, and I'd like to start off uh, telling a little bit about uh, my testimony uh, and what led me to uh, be working with Muslims and sharing the gospel in the secular country of France. Um, I have been a Fruo Baptist preacher's boy about all of my life. Um, and so when I was about six or eight years old, uh, just by having missionaries in our home uh, and sharing meals with them and spending the night with us and us, uh, or them just sharing about uh, their ministries and things uh, at our church, I felt God calling me to be a missionary. Uh, and, and to move overseas. Um, but I remember being about, about that age, about six or eight, and praying and saying, God, I'll go wherever you want me to go, but I'm not going to go to a communist country and I'm not going to work with Muslims because that's just too dangerous. Um, and so I, I feel like that whenever we pray those kinds of prayers, um, those aren't really the best prayers to be praying because God usually uh, changes our hearts um, and, and has us move towards those things whenever we start telling God we're not going to do something. So if everybody would bow their heads with me uh, and repeat after me, uh, Dear Lord, uh, I just want you to know I'll go wherever you want me to go, but I will not go to southern France to work with Muslims. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've said that prayer and, and really meant it in your heart, uh, I have some, some steps right here to how you can become an IM missionary, and I'll see you in France in somewhere between two to five years. I'm just kidding. Um, but fast forward uh, in my life to my, my freshman year in high school, I went to a, a little high school in South Carolina uh, that had exchange students from all over the world. Um, when you think of the Muslim world, you probably don't think of, of South Carolina. Um, but I remember being in high school and passing by these uh, two young girls and just thinking, uh, you can call them racist or prejudiced or whatever, but I remember just thinking bad thoughts towards them because they were Muslims from Indonesia. And God really began to, uh, you can come here. Oh. Uh, God really began to, to convict me about that and uh, began to lead me to work in the Muslim world. Um, and so that's kind of my, my testimony about what's, uh, what led me to, to working in France uh, with Muslims. Um, I'd also like to, to start off today just with sort of an overview on Islam. Um, most Muslims in the world will tell you a few things that, that they believe. When you ask them what they believe, they'll usually start off with the five pillars of Islam. Um, those five pillars are, one, the Shahada, uh, which is the Muslim statement of faith. Um, to become a Muslim, all you have to do is be standing in front of two Muslim men and say, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa Muhammadun wa Rasulullah, which means there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Um, one thing that I would like to, to point out with that is, as Christians, with what Muslims are meaning by the first half of that statement, we would pretty much agree with what they're saying. Um, if you look at Deuteronomy 6, 
um, which the D6 conference in our curriculum is based off of. It's a, it starts off, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, which means, uh, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, and so one of the first things in, in Islam is they are very monotheist. They believe in one true God. Um, the second part of the shahada is what we as Christians would have more of a problem with, with Muhammad being a prophet. But we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, the Salah or the Salat is the five daily prayers that Muslims have. They have one at sunrise, they have one at noon, they have one in mid-afternoon, they have one when the sun sets, and they have one, I think it's halfway between when the sun sets and midnight. Um, but those five daily prayers are, are something that almost every Muslim in the world would tell you that that's something they believe in. The third pillar would be Ramadan. Um, there's a particular holy month in Islam where they'll fast from the time the sun comes up to the time the sun goes down. Uh, they don't eat anything. Um, the, the big thing that's just shocking to most people is they don't even drink water during the day. Uh, many Muslims are actually careful about how they brush their teeth during the day uh, in Ramadan because they believe if anything goes down their throat that it will break their fast. Um, there are actually places in the world, particularly in Africa, where you'll see uh, Muslim men standing on the side of the street and just constantly spitting throughout the day, all day during Ramadan, because they believe even if they swallow their own saliva, that it'll break their fast. Um, the next pillar of Islam is zakat, um, which is kind of like Christian tithing. Um, they only tithe 2.5%, but it's actually a bigger, um, they, would, they would tithe off of more than what a Christian typically would. Um, more of like everything they own before taxes and, and everything with that. And so Muslims are, are really generous with that. And the fifth pillar of Islam is the Hajj. Um, there's a particular month during uh, the, the Muslim calendar uh, where they'll go to the city of Mecca and there are different things that they do uh, in Mecca, um, running around a, a big black box called the Kaaba that Muslims believe that Abraham built with Ishmael. Um, they uh, run between two mountains like they believe that Hagar did whenever she was um, whenever she was searching for water, they believe that she ran between two mountains, and so they'll do all of these different traditional things, many of which were actually pagan practices before Islam came into the, the Arabian Peninsula. Um, there, there's one place where they actually pick up pebbles and throw it at this particular thing, like they're stoning the devil. Um, and so there are many different things uh, with the Hajj, but those are the, the five pillars of Islam that most Muslims will tell you that they believe. Um, another thing that Muslims will tell you that they believe are there seven articles of faith. Um, like we mentioned with the Shahada, uh, they would believe in Allah and the Tawheed. Uh, Tawheed is just the, the oneness of God, the, the unity of God, Him uh, only being one um, or being only one. Um, the second one, many people you'll hear will say the belief in angels. It's not necessarily that they just believe in angels, but they believe more in spiritual beings. Um, where in Christianity we have angels and demons, uh, in Islam they have angels and jinn. Uh, so jinn is actually where we get the English word genie from, um, but when you think of jinn, don't think of um, uh, Aladdin or any of those things. Don't think of, of Will Smith or Robin Williams. That's not what Muslims are talking about when they, when they talk about jinn. Um, Muslims believe that uh, when, when God created the world that he made humans out of dirt, he made angels out of light, and he made jinn out of fire. And so there are just... Uh, if anybody's familiar with um, Irish fairy stories or, or leprechauns, a jinn are kind of that sort of idea. Um, they're sort of morally ambiguous. They're not necessarily good, they're not necessarily bad, but they're always tricky in whatever they do. Um, and in many Muslims' practices, 
um, they believe that jinn live in the pipes in your house. And so in certain parts of North Africa, you don't use hot water because the jinn hate hot water. In other parts, you don't use cold water because the jinn hate cold water. I mean, you have to be careful in the bathrooms because the jinn live in the pipes in your toilet. Um, and so there are a lot of interesting practices um, with the belief in, in spiritual beings. Uh, they believe in the scriptures. They believe in the Torah, um, the five books of Moses and what Moses wrote. They believe in the Psalms that David wrote. They believe in the scrolls that the prophets like Isaiah wrote. Um, they believe in uh, the gospel, which they believe was a book that was written by, or not written by Jesus, but given to Jesus. But, but that's a, another interesting thing. Um, and they believe in the Quran that was revealed to Muhammad. Um, they believe in prophets and messengers, like we as Christians believe that there were prophets in the Old Testament, that God has sent to uh, help guide the children of Israel and uh, write things to help uh, us know how to live their lives. They believe in, in prophets too. Um, they believe in, in Judgment Day. And once you die, that's a big thing that a Muslim uh, must believe in. They believe uh, in the, the sovereignty of, of Allah. Um, if Muslim theology was put in a, a Christian context, Muslims would be hyper-Calvinist. Um, they would believe that Allah has just foretold everything from the beginning of time. Um, even whether or not you, you go to, to heaven or hell, um, I don't remember if it was Muhammad or, or another Muslim scholar, but it said that uh, even if you had one foot in heaven, if Allah willed that you were to go to hell, even with one foot in heaven, you would go to hell, um, and, and vice versa. Um, one thing that you hear many Muslims will say, if something bad happens, they'll say maktub, which means uh, as it has been written, um, which means, oh, this was a bad thing that happened, but it couldn't have been any other way. Um, and they believe in the afterlife. Um, One thing to think about, though, um, with all of those things, while most Muslims will tell you that they believe all of those things, the way that a Muslim actually practices is a lot less um, involved with, with those things as with different other traditions and, and other things. Um, if you talk to any uh, missionary that's working with Muslims um, about uh, sharing the gospel or, or getting to know Muslims. Um, probably the first thing that they'll recommend to you is a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by a man named, Camille, uh, named Kab Nabil Qureshi. Uh, Nabil Qureshi was a Pakistani-American man um, who was very American and very Pakistani and Muslim. Um, and he, he wrote a book about his life story, how uh, he grew up in an American home and how um, his dad was in the military, and so when 9-11 uh, happened, he had a, just a real identity crisis, um, but was still a, a very devout Muslim uh, up until uh, college. And in college, he met a, um, a man named David Wood, uh, who led him to the Lord by them becoming really good friends. Um, unfortunately, about five, a little over five years ago, I believe, um, Nabil passed away due to stomach cancer. Um, but this is just sort of his testimony. Um, and while I would definitely recommend this book, um, and it is a, a great resource, uh, I feel like that it, this is just the, the beginning of, of what it takes to, to share the gospel with Muslims, because there are a lot of uh, logical conclusions and philosophical things that Nabil came to that your average Muslim that you're going to be talking to isn't really going to understand or relate to. And one of the big hangups that Muslim ha Muslims have is the idea of the Trinity. And it was in like a, a physics class when they were talking about quantum theory, where Nabil was like, oh, something can be a particle and a wave. Oh, the Trinity must be able to be uh, a real thing. Um, most of your Muslim friends aren't going to be <laughs> thinking 
about quantum theory and understanding what that is. Um, but I definitely would uh, recommend this book. I would also recommend a book that Nabil wrote called uh, No God But One, Allah or Jesus, which where uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus is more of his testimony. Um, no God But One is more of the, the logical conclusions and the uh, apologetics that he used uh, to get to, to where he um, kind of rationalized his way um, into becoming a Christian. Um, one thing, though, to, to think about with a lot of Muslims, sort of an opposite point of this, um, most Muslims didn't logic their way into Islam. Um, most Muslims were, were born into Islam. Uh, and so um, when we're sharing the gospel with Muslims, um, the, the testimony side of what he did is, is very important because our testimony is one of the most important things um, for us sharing the gospel with Muslims because um, it's hard to logic somebody out of a religion that they didn't logic themselves into. Um, I listen to a podcast called Cultish, um, and they make that statement all the time when talking about cults and different religions. Um, and so that's uh, something to, to keep in mind. Um, in Islam, a lot of the time people will talk about true Islam versus folk Islam. Um, how you have, uh, when, when the... Um, when the Muslim Empire and the, the Caliphate conquered or left the, the Arabian Peninsula and conquered North Africa and a lot of the Middle East and everything, uh, a lot of the beliefs of Islam, a lot of the, the five pillars and the seven articles of faith were intertwined with the pagan beliefs of the culture that was already there. And you see that a lot in North Africa with uh, just the, the spiritism and different things that uh, you see Muslims practicing even though they believe in, in Islam. Um, and the more that I've studied Islam and, and looked at, at what would be considered folk Islam, the more I'm convinced that all Islam is folk Islam. Because Islam doesn't exist in a vacuum outside of any other culture. Maybe if you're uh, at the, the, the harem, the big mosque in Mecca, you might be able to call that true Islam. Um, but I have some Muslim friends that have been there and the, the European Muslims and the Middle Eastern Muslims and the North African Muslims are all different there as well. Um, and so uh, one thing that you need to keep in mind if you're witnessing with Muslims is don't really assume anything. Um, most of the time it's safe to assume the five pillars of Islam and the seven articles of faith, um, but the way that a Muslim actually practices could be very uh, different from that. Um, Depending on where you're at in the world, what they consider halal and haram can be very different. Halal is kind of the Muslim word for kosher. Um, so what they believe is clean and unclean. Like I remember I was in a, a French class with two Turkish guys and they were talking about Turkey and um, everything um, about their, their culture. Um, and, and one thing to know about Islam is uh, alcohol is forbidden in Islam. But these Turkish guys were talking about uh, Ramadan, how Ramadan is practiced uh, in Turkey, and they were talking about fasting and not drinking water, and they said, oh yes, we, we give up alcohol for the entire month of Ramadan. And I raised my hand and I said, wait, so you do drink alcohol the rest of the year? And they said, oh yeah, definitely, we just don't do it during Ramadan. Um, and, and most Muslims in the world, if you made a statement like that, would say, Astaghfirullah, may Allah forgive this, like what are you talking about that you drink alcohol at all? Um, and even in cultures that are more similar, like the, the North African cultures, um, there are different uh, emphasis of how they practice and what they believe. Um, if you're talking with a Moroccan person, they're likely to talk about uh, hasanets, 
um, which is the, the Muslim point system. Muslims believe that you have to get more uh, good points and do more good deeds than bad deeds. Um, and so they'll say, oh, giving to the, the poor is a certain amount of hasanets, or fasting for this particular day is a certain amount of that. Um, if you're on a, or if you're at a, a park and you see a Muslim mother uh, getting on to one of her children um, because a piece of playground equipment is dirty or is unclean, they're probably Tunisian. Um, because Tunisians really focus on things being clean or things being dirty, and that's what they base a lot of their religion around. Uh, I remember one of my Tunisian friends um, was showing me how he prayed. Um, and so he, he went and he did all of the uh, washings and everything, washing your right hand three times and left hand three times and ears three times and your mouth and nostrils out and all of these kinds of things. And afterwards he said, oh yes, we, we like to be clean um, when we pray and we, we like to, uh, it's good to be clean because God loves clean people. And so, I mean, that really hit me just because of the way that we believe in Christianity. We, it's not that God loves clean people, God loves cleaning people. Um, and so, uh, just to, to be aware, when you're sharing the gospel with uh, a Muslim, what they actually believe in practice could be very varied throughout the world. The first step that I would say, if you're going to try to make Muslim friends and, and get to know uh, Muslims, is to not be afraid of Muslim people. I know that that's something that we as Americans, like it's a really easy place to, to fall into, seeing a a Muslim man on the road with a big beard or, or seeing a lady wearing a hijab, one of the, the headscarves. Um, it can be a very uh, fearful thing. But don't be afraid. Muslims don't bite. I, I know of like maybe one Muslim guy that I think might bite me, but I, he's, uh, <laughs> like he's, just, he's just wild anyways. Um, but don't, uh, don't be afraid to, to go and, and learn a, a few words in your Muslim friend's language. Um, when you walk up to a Muslim person anywhere in the world, it's pretty acceptable to say, Assalamu alaikum, which means may, may God's peace be upon you. Um, even in places in the Muslim world that don't speak Arabic, the majority of the world's Muslims don't speak Arabic. Um, but that greeting is a, a very common thing throughout the Muslim world. I mean, the, the response to that, if somebody says that to you, is, well, alaikum assalam, and it's, it means, uh, and may peace also be with you. Um, but I, I remember, uh, I had learned a little bit of, well, I have a friend that owns a sandwich shop. Um, and so I, I go there pretty often in, in France. And I remember the first probably year or so that I was there, um, his wife was always the one that was like working the cash register and, and ringing me up and everything. And uh, she wasn't rude, but she just was very cold and standoffish. Um, until I had learned a little bit of Tunisian Arabic, which is where her and her husband are from. And I remember, I just said a couple phrases. I think that I just said, um, please, or, or thank you, or, or goodbye uh, in Tunisian Arabic. And it was like a, a switch flipped with her. And she was like, oh, hey, this is good. Do you want, do you want a drink? Would you like extra pepper on your, your sandwich? Um, so never discount how much it, it means to somebody to speak their own language. Um, and also don't be discouraged if you try to speak somebody's language and they don't respond to that at all. I don't know how many guys in France I went up to and said, assalamu alaikum. And I don't know if they looked at me and saw that I was white or if they could tell in my accent, but they would like hear me say that and turn around and look at me and go, 
bonjour, just like really hard. Um, but eventually, a lot of them started responding to me in, in Arabic and, and really warming up to, to me and to, to that. Um, find opportunities to spend time with Muslims. Um, the, the way that my team does it is through teaching English. Um, we use our English classroom as a, a touch point to get to know people and get to meet people. Um, but we don't stop there. Our, our main goal is to be able to take those relationships outside of the classroom and, and get to know people. Um, if you have a Muslim friend, invite them out to coffee. Um, invite them over to your house to, to share a meal. Um, one thing to be careful about is, is just thinking about what they can eat and can't eat just with the Muslim um, dietary restrictions. Um, but that's even something to ask your, your Muslim friends about because most Muslims don't eat pork, but you would be surprised at just Muslims that don't really care about food. So it's, it's a good idea to just ask. Um, but just be, be cautious with that. And also, don't be afraid to accept an invitation to, to go and get coffee, um, to go over to somebody's house up particularly during the month of Ramadan, um, when Muslims uh, finish their fast and the sun sets, uh, they have a big feast that they call an iftar, where a bunch of family members and people from the community get together uh, and eat. Um, and it's just an awesome opportunity to get to know people. Um, and I'm not saying that you should start celebrating Ramadan. Um, like their fasting and stuff is just ridiculous. But don't be afraid to go and just share a, a Muslim or share a meal with, with Muslims. Um, and to, to bring a gift or just to, to be nice to them whenever you, you go over to their place. Don't be afraid to share what you believe. I don't know of a single Muslim person that is ashamed of being a Muslim at all or is cautious about how they talk about what they believe. Um, so I'm not saying to be aggressive, but don't be afraid to just say, yeah, I believe in, in Jesus. I believe that he was God and died on the cross for my sins. He's changed my life. Um, that's something that we as Christians should say and shouldn't be afraid to say with Muslims. And also ask good questions. Um, that's the, the best way to, to get to know anybody. I mean, uh, especially Muslims. Um, to get to know what they actually believe, to get to know um, many Muslims that you're going to come in contact with are going to have immigrated from somewhere or their parents are going to have immigrated from somewhere. And so ask them about that. Um, I feel like that everybody likes talking about themselves. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a, a good um, starting point to get to know people, to, to ask good questions. One thing that you might hear in the news, or you might have heard about with Islam, is the Sunni versus Shia debate. Um, I, and that's something that exists in the Muslim world. Um, actually, Nabil Qureshi, I forget the kind of Muslim that he was, but he was actually neither of those. Um, and while there might be theological implications between the Sunnis and the Shias, there aren't really any practical implications for us as we're sharing the gospel with that. So don't, I mean, you could ask them if they're Sunni or Shia. Um, the majority of them are going to be Sunni. Um, but when you're sharing the gospel, I don't know of any particular tactics about sharing the gospel with a Sunni that wouldn't work with a Shia and vice versa. Um, one topic that might be rather controversial um, is talking about Muhammad. Um, unless you're really, really close to somebody, I would kind of avoid talking about Muhammad. Um, one of my friends 
that I've shared the gospel with a couple of times. Um, when I brought up, well, he actually was the one that brought up Muhammad. One of my friends that I had shared the gospel with him and shared who we believed Jesus was and everything. And he asked us what we believed about Muhammad. Um, and I kind of pushed him about why he thought Muhammad was a prophet. If I've ever done anything that I was trying to go my, my flesh and, and wanting to share apologetics that I had learned and not what the Spirit was leading, it was then. Um, and that kind of ended the conversation. Because you'll hear Muslims say that, that shirk, that assigning um, partners with Allah, which is what they say that we do with Jesus, is the unforgivable sin. But the quickest way to get killed in a Muslim country is to talk about, about Muhammad. Um, but if you're not familiar with who Muhammad was, he is the, the prophet in Islam. Um, the Quran was revealed to him. Um, and I could talk about a lot of apologetics against Islam because of Muhammad. I could talk about how he married his best friend's daughter um, that was his closest companion when she was six and consummated the marriage when, they, when she was nine, making him a pedophile. I could talk about how um, he owned black African slaves and said that two black African slaves were worth the same amount as one white or Arab African slave, making him racist. I could talk about how um, he lusted after his adopted son's wife, so his adopted son divorced her and then wrote in the Quran that it was okay to marry the wife of your adopted son. And when obviously nobody thought that that was right, he actually banned adoption in Islam so that it was never his son and so he could marry her and it would be fine. Those are not points that you should probably bring up with your Muslim friends if you don't, like if you want them to get to know you and get to know Jesus. Um, so I would shy away from, from Muhammad. And I can't say that everything that Muhammad did was bad. Um, there was a lot of polytheism in the Arabian Peninsula, and he made it a, a monotheistic place. Um, while the way that women are treated is awful in Islam, it is a lot better than way, the way it was before Muhammad. And so there are good things that Muhammad did, and if you um, feel the Holy Spirit leading you to point out some of those good things, go for it. Um, but Muhammad is a, a topic that I would probably avoid until you're really close to, to somebody. Uh, I almost feel like the, that Muhammad being a prophet is something that we share the gospel with people and the Holy Spirit is the one that moves in their lives about that, or about that topic. Um, if you ask most Muslims why they believe that Muhammad was a prophet, they'll, go, they'll take you to the Quran, um, which was the, the book that was revealed to Muhammad. Um, some things about the Quran, um, for it to be an official Quran for it to be the, the real word of Allah in a Muslim's mind, it has to be in Arabic. It can't be translated into any other uh, languages. Um, the biggest apologetics that Muslims will talk about uh, with the Quran is they'll say that nobody can write poetry like it. Um, and that's such a, a subjective argument for it because um, there are Christians who have translated the like the Psalms and things into Arabic and have recited them in the middle of Muslim cities and Imams have walked by and said, oh, thank you for reciting the Quran. So that kind of argument is sort of not super great. Um, another thing with the Quran is it's sort of a difficult document to read um, because it reads like an oral tradition. It doesn't read like a, a book, like where we have in the West, we have books that have chapters and they follow a, a chronological order. Um, the Quran, um, Muhammad would just recite different things, recite different insights that he had gotten from Allah, um, and they would put them in different parts of, of the Quran. Um, I would challenge you, if you're wanting to, to work with Muslims, to, to pick up a copy of the Quran and read it. 
Um, this is the kind of thing that I'm saying, do as I say, not as I do, because I haven't gotten far in the Quran at all. Because um, it's a really boring and somewhat like non-sequential book. So it's really hard to read because it just doesn't make sense a lot of the time. Um, but having read the Quran is something that you can, it, it carries weight working with Muslims. Um, one thing, I have these sort of out of order. Um, one thing with Muslims, when you're trying to talk about the Quran with a Muslim, and in Christianity, we have this idea of solo scriptura, the idea that like we can pick up the Bible and we can read it for ourselves, and the Holy Spirit uh, illuminates the Bible, and, and we can understand it for ourselves. That idea is completely foreign in Islam. Um, a Muslim doesn't think that they can pick up the Quran and read it for themselves and understand it. So when you're trying to share the gospel with Muslims or, or point out inconsistencies in uh, Islam, if you point out uh, something in the Quran, they'll probably just say, oh, that's not what my imam told me. And so it's hard to, to make some of those statements because the idea of Muslim authority doesn't come from the scriptures themselves. It comes from the imams in who taught those imams. They almost have this idea of, of how we would talk about like apostolic, like con, not concession, secession. Basically, a good imam will be able to tell you who taught him and who taught him and who taught him all the way back to Muhammad. And that's where they get their authority from, not from the scriptures themselves. And there's another thing in the Quran called the, um, the theory or the doctrine of abrogation, which means there are some things in the Quran that Muhammad told to a specific people for a specific time, um, or that Allah told to, for a specific people for a specific time, that after that aren't the case anymore. Um, like some things in the Quran, you, you'll look and they'll say, um, oh, you need to, to kill the infidels is one thing that a lot of people like to bring up. But many Muslims will tell you that that was for a specific time when the Muslims were being persecuted in Mecca or something like that. And that afterwards, in Allah's uh, grace, not in him changing, but in for a grace to people, he, he um, updated the Quran um, for, the, for more time, uh, or for, for the rest of time. And so... I wouldn't really spend a whole lot of time in the Quran when I was talking with Muslims. Um, because if they had the same sort of doctrine that we do about, oh, if, if one thing in the Bible is false, we would question everything in the Bible. Um, and I could turn to the Quran and say, oh, look, in this verse, it says that Christians believe that God had a wife named Mary and they had a biological son named Jesus. And we worship all three of those as, as gods. And I should be able to say, hey, you see that that's not true, so this is obviously not completely truth, but the Muslim mentality and the way that they look at, at truth and where they get their authority from just isn't, um, uh, isn't like that. Um, and if you look at the origins of the, um, of the Quran, and this is something that um, you might bring up when you're closer to somebody, when the Quran was supposedly revealed to Muhammad, Muslims will say that it was revealed by the angel Jibril or the angel Gabriel in the Bible. Um, but if you read the, the works of Paul and read in Galatians and 1 Corinthians, it talks about how the devil uh, masquerades as an angel of light and how Paul says, if anyone preaches to you a gospel different than the gospel that we've preached, um, even an angel from heaven, uh, may that, that person be accursed. And when the Quran talks about the angel Gabriel, it specifically lists him as an angel of light. <laughs> 
Um, and that was actually the argument that I was trying to get to with my friend um, when I sort of shut down the conversation with Muhammad. Um, but um, apart from the Quran, the way that the majority of Muslims get their day-to-day -day life and their day-to-day -day practices come from the Hadith, which where the Quran is the words of, of God, the words of Allah in a Muslim's mind, the Hadiths are just the sayings of the Prophet. And so, um, and it really just depends on who a Muslim talks to, which um, hadith or, or sahih, which hadith are good, um, and which of them are bad. And so if you try to point out an inconsistency in one of them, they'll just say that that one's not the, the best uh, of the hadith. Um, another thing that I don't, I wouldn't say I would necessarily avoid, but one sort of hot button controversial topic when you're sharing the gospel with Muslims is the idea of the Trinity. Um, most Muslims would say that we're tritheist. Most Muslims would think that instead of the Holy Spirit, that Mary would be the second person of the Trinity um, with us. Um, the Trinity isn't something that I would get hung up on, but it's also not something that I would avoid. I mean, God is God, and God has revealed himself in a specific way, and we shouldn't shy away from sharing how God has revealed himself through the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, apart from just sharing the gospel with Muslims, one thing that I would like to say with the, the Trinity as well is just be careful the analogies that you use because you could say some stuff that are just as heretical in Christianity and just as offensive in church history <laughs> as they would be talking to a Muslim. Um, so just be careful when you're talking about the Trinity um, and just say what the Bible says about um, the, the triune nature of God. There are a few different methods that you'll find um, a lot of... Uh, missionaries that work with Muslims uh, will use. There's one that's called the camel method. Um, there's a particular chapter in the Quran that talks about how um, it makes it look like Jesus was more than just a regular prophet um, and how he was the only one that directly ascended into heaven. So in the Muslim worldview, he's the only one that we actually know is in heaven because they, um, the Hadith say that the prophet Muhammad himself didn't actually know if he was going to make it into, uh, into paradise. Um, and so with uh, the, the camel method, uh, some Muslims around the world, some former Muslims around the world are using uh, the Quran to point people to reading the, the Injil, the, the New Testament, the, the Gospel. Um, I'm not really sure how comfortable I am with trying to use the Quran to point to Jesus. Um, I feel like that there's a sort of strange double standard with that. Um, but I would just say with that, that the Holy Spirit works in different people's lives in different ways, and I know that there are places around the world where many people are coming to, the, to Christ because of that method. Um, so if you're wanting to work with Muslims, just pray about that and see where the Holy Spirit leads. Um, discovery Bible studies and disciple-making movements are two different methods where um, you kind of just read the Bible with people and let the Holy Spirit move in them to ask different questions about it. Um, and, and that's one thing that uh, many, many of those movements reproduce very quickly um, because you just put God's words in people's hands and let it transform them, their lives and they take it and uh, have it transform other people's lives. The only hesitation that I would have with that is we don't need to neglect how important it is to really ground people in the scriptures and for them to really know what Christians believe and Christian doctrine is. Um, and so in, in a lot of the missions world, I think that um, to try to not impose our culture on other people, um, we try to just share the, the Bible and let the Holy Spirit move from there. And while I think that it's very important to put the scriptures in the cultural context of people that we're working with, we don't need to be afraid to just share Jesus and share what we believe and share what the Bible says about different topics.
Uh, my method that I typically use, I like to call teaching English and eating sandwiches, uh, tease, just tease people to the gospel, um, which basically means that you find a place that you can be in a community. If it's working in a cafe, if it's uh, going to different sandwich shops, if it's teaching English, um, just getting to know people um, and, and sharing the gospel in that way. Um, another method that I use uh, when I'm sharing the gospel is through Genesis chapter 15. Um, one of the big things that Muslims struggle with is the idea of Jesus being God. Um, and when you, you press them, they'll say, well, like you can ask them, well, don't you think that Allah could do anything? Um, and they'll say, well, yes, Allah could do anything. And you could say, well, then couldn't he come as a man? And they said, well, yes, he could, but why would he? Um, and I mean, that's like an actual conversation that I've had, not just hypothetical stuff. And so I usually take Muslims to Genesis chapter 15, um, where we see uh, God making a, a covenant with Abraham. Um, and I feel like that Muslims really relate to Abraham as well. I feel like that they relate a lot more to the Old Testament than they do, the, than they do to the New Testament. Um, and in it, Genesis chapter 15 is where God's making the promise with Abraham that he'll inherit the land and be a great nation and all of these things. Uh, and we see, uh, it's one of the strangest stories to me in the Old Testament because we see Abraham take all of these animals and cut them in half. Um, and the way, or what that was, was something called a suzerain vassal covenant, um, which uh, in the ancient Near East, um, it's kind of like if, you've, if you're familiar with like the Italian mob. Um, in the ancient Near East, they had these agreements where there was a big party and a little party, like a, a mob boss and just the everyday street people. And the way that this agreement would work was the, the little party would pledge all of their loyalty to the big party. And as long as they were faithful to the big party, the big party would protect them. Um, so uh, the, the little party would go and do all the little things that the mob boss would need to do, or would need them to do. Um, and they, if they ever got in trouble or anything, the mob boss would have their back. But if for any reason the little party did anything against the big party, I mean, you know what happens when you, when you stab the mob boss in the back. <laughs> like, you're, you're dead. Um, and so that was the kind of agreement that God was making with, with Abraham, or that, that was the kind of agreement that was being set up here. And so we see Abraham cut these animals in half. And what the little party was supposed to do in these kinds of covenants was they were supposed to walk through these animals, um, basically signing their name in blood, that if they ever went back on this agreement, um, that it would, it would be for the price of their life. But instead of Abraham walking through these animals, and we see him actually wait until the animals start going bad and rotting and smelling bad in the, the Middle Eastern heat. Um, and he has to shoo away birds of prey that are coming to eat them. And we see nightfall, and we see Abraham wake up terrified because he's realized that he's waited too late. He hasn't signed his side of the covenant. And because of that, he's a, a dead man. Um, but instead of, um, instead of God killing him, which God had the right to do. I mean, God has the right to, to do that anyways. But in this covenant, instead of God doing that, we actually see this, this boiling pot and this torch that passed through these animals. And what that symbolizes is God looking at Abraham and saying, Abraham, I know you're really going to mess up. I know that you're never going to be able to keep up your side of the covenant. So what I'm going to do is God is the one that can do that. 
is I'm going to sign both sides of this covenant in blood. So that when you're unfaithful, I'm going to be the one that's faithful. And when you're the one that sins, I'm going to be the one that takes that punishment and that consequence. And while I haven't had any Muslims that at that point in the conversation, in the story, have said, oh yes, I, I understand, like I'm going to be a Christian now. Um, I had a Muslim that at the beginning of the conversation that I was having with him, anytime I would say that Jesus was God or that, that God died on the cross, he would say, astaghfirullah, mate. God forgive you for saying that and me for listening to you say that. At the end of the conversation and the end of that story, he said, okay, I, I still don't agree with you, but I see why you'd believe that. Um, and so that could be a conversation that you have with a, a Muslim a Muslim friend. Um, another method that you can uh, could use is called the Adha and the Injil. Um, there's a, a big feast at the end of uh, the Hajj um, where Muslims all slaughter animals or slaughter lambs uh, in memorial of when Abraham took his son on the mountain and God provided a sacrificial lamb. Um, Muslims believe that it was Ishmael instead of Isaac, but um, that we still have a, a similar story in that and the, the similar idea of there being a a substitute. Um, and so there's a, a book that if you're interested I could send you the PDF of um, and it's in a lot of different languages um, and so it's uh, just about how Jesus was the true Adha, was the true sacrificial lamb and how in the Injil or in the, the Gospels we can see that. Um, some things to think about when you're trying to share the Gospel is just the commonalities that we have as Christians uh, and Muslims. Uh, we believe in one God um, we believe that Jesus was a, a real man, a historical figure. Um, Muslims believe some things that you'd be surprised that they believe. Like they believe that um, Jesus was virgin born, which is weird because they believe that Christians don't think that. But that's strange. They believe in the second coming of Christ. Um, many of the characters that you see in the Bible, uh, or you see in the Quran, are, are the same characters that you see in the Bible. Um, Muslims pray a lot. Um, Muslims have the same sort of morals, more or less, that we do. Um, and one thing that we can really agree with Muslims on and come beside them with is a lot of the things that we're seeing in our culture, um, a lot of the things we're seeing in, in secular France and seeing just in the, in the States today is both Muslims and Christians are fighting against just the, the radical leftist liberalism that we're seeing um, in the world with just the, the LGBT movement and just a, a lot of things with that. Um, and so don't be afraid to find similarities with your Muslim friends and, and try to, to, to bond with them over those things. Um, but there are some big differences, like Muslims not believing Jesus was God, thinking that the Bible has been corrupted, which is something that the Quran actually never says. There's a part of the Quran that says that Jews changed what they were teaching, but it doesn't say they actually changed the Bible itself. Um, and so that's something to, to take before your, your Muslim friends um, and, and say, hey, that's not something that is actually in any of your scriptures. Um, they don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. They believe that somebody took his place to make it look like Jesus died on the cross. Um, many Muslims will say that that was Judas. Um, they could say it was Joseph of Arimathea. Um, there are some different people that they believe that it could have been. Um, and so there are quite a few differences um, between Islam and Christianity. Um, and there are differences that it's not a bad idea to, to point out, to say, no, we don't really believe the same thing. Islam isn't a continuation of Christianity. Um, but those are some, some differences. When I started feeling led to be a, a missionary with Muslims, I would have hated somebody to telling me this. 
And this is still a hard thing for me to, to think about or whatever. Um, and I know that I'm not the best at this. But the best way to share the gospel with Muslims and to be prepared to share the gospel with Muslims is to read your Bible and to have a consistent prayer life. Because the Holy Spirit is doing crazy things in the Muslim world. And if you want the Holy Spirit to be moving in your life for you to be a part of those things, like you've got to be in a good relationship with Him, reading the Bible, feeding on the Word, and just spending time with God in prayer. Praying for your Muslim friends and those that you're, you're around. And don't be afraid to just share the gospel, just to share the plan of salvation. Like I've emphasized multiple times, ask good questions with your Muslim friends. See what they actually believe and, and how that differs from what you believe. Your testimony is one of the biggest tools that you can use to, to share the gospel. Um, Muslims can argue that the Bible has been corrupted. They can argue that Jesus wasn't God. They can argue that the Quran is better than the Bible. But Muslims can't argue the way that Jesus has changed our lives. The way that we were sinners and the way that we were, I mean, we're still sinners, but the way that we were slaves to sin in the ways that we're not now. Because Muslims are still slaves to sin. Um, many times, the reason that Muslims are Muslims are because they were born like that. Like they were born into a Muslim family. And I feel like that that is why it is so important for us to share what Jesus said in John chapter 3, that we must be born again. One thing to do, um, and this sounds kind of weird, but just be a good Christian. I mean, I feel like that most people that are here are going to church or reading their Bibles or doing those sorts of things. Um, but I have a, a friend who's a missionary in Jordan that's talked about how he started practicing Lent because his Muslim friends are like, wait, don't y'all have a fasting holiday too? It's Lent. Why aren't you fasting? Um, and so I'm not saying to, like, unless you're, like, really involved with Muslims to start practicing and following the church calendar. But just be a good Christian. <laughs> um, follow the Holy Spirit in, in what he's telling you to do. Um, Conversations that I've had um, with Muslim guys, there was one conversation, um, if you look in one magazine, there's an article called I Only Have Two Hands. Um, read that one. I had a conversation at the university where the thing that the Holy Spirit told me to talk to this guy about was hell, which is not in any of the books that you'll read on, uh, on sharing the gospel with Muslims. Um, I started talking about how Jacob was a deceiver in, in the Old Testament, but God used him anyway, how Israel means wrestles with God, and so we can ask hard questions to God um, in, in different ways um, with, with people. So really just follow the way that the Holy Spirit leads. If you feel the Holy Spirit telling you not to share something, don't say it, but don't give up an opportunity to share the gospel when the Holy Spirit's leading you there. And the biggest thing, just be there. The biggest way for you to share the gospel with Muslims is just being a part of their lives. Um, I don't really have times for stories or anything. I have a big reading list. If you want to take a picture of this, this is a lot of really good books. I don't know if I would necessarily say all of them right now, um, but there are just a lot of really good resources. The Bima Podcast number 10, Walking the Blood Path, is actually a, a Christian guy who studied under Jewish scholars, and it's where I got the Genesis 15 story more laid out for me. Um, and there's also a podcast called Apologetics to Islam that are some of Nabil Qureshi's um, 
lectures at Biola University about Islam, and there are about five or six of them, and they're probably about an hour and a half long a piece. But it's one of the most comprehensive, just basic overviews of Islam that I know of. Um, I only have like a minute left, but does anybody have any questions? I also wouldn't, um, or I also would recommend, there are a lot of Arabic English Bibles. Um, I feel like that Muslims with just how much emphasis they put on the Arabic language being the heavenly language, um, that's not a bad idea to, to give them a, a New Testament and Injil um, that's in Arabic and English, or I have some that are in Arabic and French.